my name is Christine and welcome to Unmuzzled at 67. We're in series three and today is episode four. So as always, thank you for choosing my podcast. You've got a huge amount to choose from. So it's great to have your company. You're very welcome. Let's start by uh, doing a quick recap on what I was talking about last week, which was, uh, was talking about what life can be like if you have problems with self-worth and self-esteem. And if you can't get these under control, this can really fuck up your life. There, are, There is no point in trying to dismiss this or think it's not important, because I think you only think that if you don't have these things. If you have lack of self-esteem or lack of self-worth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm, of course, talking about from my own experience. But it is important to know that you weren't born that way. Your life experiences brought that to you. Um, I was talking about what I did to try to get these under control. It's part of the overall bigger plan of changing mindset. And these were both destructive elements for me. Um, so they, they came under under the arm of the plan of, of thinking better and behaving better. Though I must admit, for me, I do have to keep my eye on this. These two traits were real trouble for me, and I will do anything that is required to keep them out of my life. And it seems the wee funny story at the end of it of the last episode went down a treat. Who knew? My singing was absolute pish, which was disappointing for me, um, as I have had, have had in the past, um, a, a really good reputation for Glaswegian cabaret singing. Um, it was one of these ones where it sounded better in my head. Um, still, uh, and in fact, I nearly phoned Cam to say, Cam, I think you should edit that out. I just think it was pish. It just, the, the singing was not how I hoped that it would be. Um, I think I, I think it might be the worst episode that I've ever done. And that reel got 2,000 plays in 24 hours. My goodness. <laughs> Thank you for watching it if you did. So let's get going on this week's topic. It's something entirely different that I've never done before. Today, I wanted to talk about books that have inspired me. I just love reading. Um, and some of these books I'm going to talk about today have really helped and guided me over the last few years and have honestly been instrumental in me changing uh, myself. But I guess it, it all makes sense if you remember that I was born in an age where there was, uh, I was pre-internet. There's no Google. There wasn't even any iPhones. Um, if we needed to find something out, we had to buy a book or we had to go to the library. So, if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. So today I've selected a small amount of books. I have got a lot of books in my house. And years ago, I used to, people would say to me, oh, that looks good, can I borrow that? I'd say, aye, on you go. And somebody else would say, can I borrow it? See, now I say, no, get your own, get your own fucking book. Because you never, ever get them back. And a lot of my books are what I would call reference books. You like to go back and look at them again, particularly if you're in between books. Um, and for me, particularly the books I'm going to talk about right now are definitely what I call reference books and I definitely don't have them too far away. I definitely like to go back to them and have a look. But let's start with the man himself, David Goggins. If you know me at all, you know I'm a massive David Goggins fan. So where else am I going to start but here? So here is David Goggins, 
first book. It's called Can't Hurt Me. It became a New York Times bestseller very, very quickly. And in this book, David talks, David as if I fucking know him, David Goggins uh, talks about his early life. He had a terrible life growing up as a wee child and as a, as a young, as a youth. He had a horrible life. Um, and what he did to, be, to, to become, as he's known today, the hardest man alive. If you're looking for inspiration, motivation, or just awe, look no further. It's so well written. The lessons, the advice, and the tips for anyone who wants to improve themselves. Read it and just marvel at this extraordinary man. The second one, which I haven't actually finished yet, nearly finished, it is called Never Finished. Um... And this is this brings us up to date about where David Goggins is now. Um, his new challenges now that he's a kind of celebrity. He's doing a lot of how he earns his money now is doing a bit of public speaking. Well, a bit. He does worldwide public speaking now. Um, and that really is his job. So he's kind of talking in here about how he has he's come a little bit soft now in terms of what he what he does by comparison to what he used to do. So he was saying how he's maybe running 10 miles a day, whereby before he would be running maybe 50, 60 miles a day. And uh, how when he was asked to go and take part in a marathon of 240 miles, which prior to his huge success with the book, he definitely would have been able to do quite quickly. He thought to himself, that's quite that's quite funny because I, I, I don't really know how I could do that now. I'm so soft. And it really made him look at himself to see where he had come and where he now found himself right in the middle of his success and his new career um, as, a, as a speaker. So um, it talks about um, how he faces some real serious health scares and his determination to be who he really is, um, to push through the pain and to run this 240-mile marathon over five days, night and day. It talks about the training that he did for it and how he went back to do it a second time. What a man. He is a one of... I cannot put his books down and I, I keep the first book quite near me too because I often like to go back and read it again because I just, I just marvel at this incredible human being. So he told a story in his second book about a guy who came up to him. He says, people are always coming up and asking me about advice about training. So uh, this guy said, uh, any help for me, any advice for me, David, about um, training for my half marathon? And David Goggins said, a half marathon? What the fuck are you training for a half marathon for? You should be training for at least a marathon. What's the point if you're putting all this training? Oh, for fuck's sake, you get stuck into the guy. The guy's face just fell and he walked away. So I guess that is, be careful what you ask David Goggins if ever you meet him. You need to be ready for whatever he throws at you. Um, so... 
I read these books, these type of books, at least twice. And I find that the second time I read them, I've always missed something out. And I'm always so glad that I do. So I would say for any David Goggins fans like me, uh, both books are a must. They're both entirely different, written in different ways. So that's a different experience to read uh, bo both of them. So these books are a must uh, for David Goggins fans. And even if you haven't met David Goggins yet, if you haven't been introduced to this incredible human being, I can only say get the books they're both so entirely different um, they're written in a different way and they cover different parts of his life so if you want to be up to date uh, and know what David Goggins backstory is you need to have both and they are thoroughly enjoyable books I can't recommend them highly enough so uh, now I want to talk about books that really have truly helped me in a, a practical way. You you might remember my story kind of begins when I'm 60 and I'm kind of thinking I don't want to live like this anymore. And I started to reach out then because of my old habits of looking for things. I would go and look for books. That's kind of my first go-to. Yes, I, I'd use Google and I, I use the internet, absolutely. But it's still a thing that I love to hold a book. I like the feeling of the paper. I like turning the pages and I think that's very much people of my age uh, group because that's how we were brought up as young children uh, reading our first Enid Blyton books so it, it's a it's, it's a long-term habit so I'm going to start with this book it's written by a world famous author I don't know if you can see it that's the, that's the best place to put it I think uh, called Dale Carnegie his most famous book was how to Win Friends and Influence People. It was published in 1936 and was an international bestseller and is still in demand today. My dad was a big, big fan of Dale Carnegie and he gave me uh, that book to read when I was young. I wonder why. Uh, anyway, but today I want to talk about another one of his books and it's called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living for obvious reasons. So here's a few takeaways that I thought you might find interesting. From the book, one of the worst features of worrying is that it destroys our ability to concentrate. How true is that? Keep your emotions out of your thinking and secure the facts this is what I struggle with at times, but I know that's what I have to look for. Look at the facts about what you're worrying about. Use rational thinking. Cultivate a mental attitude that will bring us peace and freedom from worry. Here, this, this is my favourite bit. Let's not imitate others. Let's find ourselves and be ourselves. Wow, talk about words of wisdom. I think that's really inspiring. And learn to relax. Yes, he did honestly say meditation. Then he said yoga, physical exercise, and I would add, get outside into the park um, and enjoy some fresh air. So if you're a warrior, I recommend this book because it gives real examples of worries and it gives practical tips and advice. It's really easy to read and for me, really easy to consume the reading. So I, I also have this as a reference book and I do go back to it from time to time um, and recommend this book, particularly if you're a warrior.
let me put it back here and let's see what we're going to do who we've got next next up is oh christ wait to see this one so you can see this one's this one's a wee bit well thumbed you see all the wee bits of paper that i've got in there marking it it's called ego is the enemy it's by a really well-known author called ryan holiday and you might have watched in the past one of my episodes on the podcast where I talked about my arrogance um, that had more, I think it was always there anyway, but it had more or less came when I began to be successful at my job and I was being headhunted for positions. And I think I said it all went to my head. Well, it did all go to my head, but it was, I think, a little bit worse than that. I think I was being kind to myself. Um, and that ego grew to narcissism. And it really turned me into a truly horrible person. I definitely needed help with it. And I found this book. Um, it's got quite a confrontational style, which I quite like. Um, and here's a couple of wee bits that I've taken out of it. The opposite of ego is humility. My God, if ever, if ever I become humble, um, I, I will just... I will just stop everything. That will be my final goal. I've worked at being humble for years and I'm not even a tiny bit near it at all. But that is my goal, as I think it might be for other people too. Um, ego is artificial. Yes, I know that. It's stolen. You steal it. Confidence is earned. Ego is self-anointed. If you're an egotist, you get that. I get that completely. So this book is really interesting because it gives real examples of real people throughout history who were successful in their chosen fields. And it compares the differences between the personalities um, and the outcomes of success between people who are humble and people who are uh, egotists. And it even talks about um, the successes of egotists. This is a kind of a general thing of egotists is usually shorter lived than the, than the success of people who are humble. And all, in the case of egotists, it can, it can sometimes bring them to their knees, broken and paranoid. So I've gone over every character trait of having a large ego and narcissism. And I've talked about it before and I've given the character traits before in another episode, so I don't think there's any need to do it again. But I definitely could clearly see myself. And the list that Ryan Holiday gives you here of egotists, narcissists, I'm on it. There's not one of these that I cannot relate to. Not so much these days, I hasten to add, but definitely at the time. And it just goes to show how much I needed this book. So what I did enjoy was the real life stories because I like things like that rather than just lots of facts and data and information. I liked these stories and some of the people, uh, they were talking about uh, um, some very um, important and well-known generals in the Second World War. So some of them I don't know, but I've certainly heard of. And so I liked the fact that there were real people here being compared, that that made it more interesting for me. Um, uh, the book um, it really it really helped me to deep dive, and it's as I say, it's a wee bit of a confrontational style. So it really there was 
it made me, that's that's what I'm looking for. It made me really, really look at those awful personality traits that I absolutely disliked and it made me become more aware of them. So I think I've talked about before, if you are looking to change yourself, if you're looking to improve yourself, if you're looking to be a better version of yourself, it starts with self-awareness. You can't begin without that honesty, brutal honesty. Um, and so this allowed me to strip away everything and face all those horrible, horrible traits about myself and get started to work on them. So I do come back to this book regularly to keep myself uh, in check. So this has been super important for my uh, my personality. And again, I don't, I don't give them to people. I just keep them near. This book is, uh, is called... Sorry, I keep doing this wrong. This book is called 10% Happier. It's by a guy called Dan Harris. And this is what he wrote on the front. This is what is written on the front cover of this book that made me buy it. This is what he said. How I tamed the voice in my head, reduced stress without losing my edge, and found self-help that actually works. A true story. That's what's written on the front. So, you know, I thought, wow, that, that is definitely for me. So this book is written by um, an American news anchor guy called Dan Harris, a lifelong sceptic of meditation. But after he had a public meltdown on TV when he was working, um, and he also had some other stuff going on as well, he knew he had to do something. So um, uh, so he set out on this journey to, to find whatever it would be to, to, to sort his mind out and to quiet his mind. His personality traits described are a lot like mine. Um, this book, uh, this book and his is his story of trying various ways to calm his mind, uh, to be mindful focus on the present. I mean, it's meditation over the back, isn't it? Um, and he says, listen to this, he says he was trying to tame the runaway train in his mind. Well, my God, I can completely and utterly relate to that. It's a really enjoyable book and I would definitely recommend it to the meditation uh, sceptics. Um, it's a great book. It's a great book. And, and the journey that he takes is interesting and the people that he meets along the way is interesting as well. So uh, it is a kind of storybook too. So um, so yes to that one as well. And this book, um, this book is just a lovely, lovely, lovely book. I don't know if I can open it to let you... So this is the cover. It's a hard cover. I don't know if I can do this and let you see. I mean, look at how beautiful it is inside. It's just, this This book is called Self-Care for the Real World. And it's written by two sisters, Nadia and Katie Narain. Aesthetically, it is the most beautiful book that I have. Um, inside, it's lovingly written, lovely photos and quotes I honestly love this book and I've given it to so many people um, as gifts. Uh, so it obviously, it covers self-care. It covers self-care from every situation and from every single angle. Um, I think every human being should have this book. It's a great reference book to have. There's just too much of it to, to really do it any justice, to bring anything out of it. 
Um, but it is a fabulous book. And uh, I think I've talked about it in one of my wee homemade videos as well. I talked about this book because I just love it so much. But it's a beautiful book to hold. And when you look at the pictures and things inside, it's just it's just very lovingly done. Now I'm coming on to the most important book uh, for me, which is called "Be Your, How to Be Your Own Therapist. And it's written by a guy called... Um, yeah, couldn't see his name there. Owen O'Kane. Owen O'Kane. Um, and I learned more about myself from this book than from any other book that I have. Or maybe it just came along at the right time. In fact, I stopped my therapy after reading this book because I thought that there's everything I need is in this book, actually, for me. So it's written by a therapist and he talks you through what a therapist would do if you were the patient. So it's really just a written down thing of what actually happens when you go to see a therapist or how he would would treat you, given what, whatever it is you would be coming for. And he tells us the story of his own personal struggles as a child and as a young man growing up in Northern Ireland um, and how he turned to therapy and in turn how he himself became a therapist. So in this book, the backstory is as interesting as what he talks about as a therapist. Uh, it's a really well-written book. It's very easy to understand um, and a great find for me. Feast your eyes on that. So these are my personal favourite books. Recently, recently. I, I mean, I just said to Cam, I couldn't bring everything. You know, the, the, the library is too much. So I just brought the ones that I've thoroughly enjoyed at the moment. So this one is called Fighting for the French Foreign Legion by an ex-Scottish legionnaire, Alex Lochre. So I have had a long fascination with the French Foreign Legion. I have no idea why. There is no connection to me and the French Foreign Legion or my family or anything. I just, in fact, I get quite emotional. They, um, when they have a, a sort of song that they sing, which is their kind of French Foreign Legion song. And I, and I sometimes watch it on YouTube and I find myself bursting out greeting and I think, what is the fucking matter with you, Christine? You and the Foreign Legion. No idea. But I love it. Um... And, and and really enjoyed this book, especially because it was written by a Scottish guy as well. So that, so that sort of added a, a kind of nice flavour to it. So this book gave me all the details of what it's like to be a legionnaire. This book gave me all the details that I needed to know uh, about what it was like to be a legionnaire. From the initial training, which I think is 16 weeks, to the day-to-day to the -day life, although there is no such thing, I suppose, as a day-to-day -day life of a legionnaire, because no two days are the same. Um, it talks about the conflicts that the author was witness to. And here are some facts that I would like to, uh, to talk about regarding the French Foreign Legion. It was formed in 1831 with the aim to bolster the, the, French, uh, the French army. The French Foreign Legion has the reputation as the world's premier mercenary army, an elite special unit with a reputation for bravery and toughness. The Legion is made up of men from all over the world. So you don't have to be French to be in the French Foreign Legion. Um, recruitment is worldwide. Um, 
So if you fancy joining, you must be over 18 and under 39 and a half. And you must learn and speak French because it's the only language spoken in the French Foreign Legion. Um, this was one of the books for me because of my love for the, for the Legion that I read three times consecutively. I couldn't get enough of it. I just loved to know about the camaraderie, how the training worked, how it was all about group training and it wasn't just about one man winning. It was all about the team winning and some, you know, depict some real examples of, of, of you know, when you're, when you're in conflict and, you know, uh, and you're under orders and as a man you want to do one thing but politically you see other things are going on. Um, and so it definitely shows things from Alex Lockery's point of view. And uh, it's a fantastic book if you're interested in that kind of thing at all. So um, so next year, my plan is going to be to, uh, I hope, to on Bastille Day, which is the 14th of July, to go to Paris or a place called Auberne, which is where the head office is of the of the French Foreign Legion, uh, where they, because it's Bastille Day, they do a special march pass. They have a very unusual marching style, the Legion. It's called the slow style. And they sing this uh, song that, the, that is well known for the Legionnaires to sing. So if I get a chance to do that, and David Goggins happens to be there at the same time, well, that's it, isn't it, really? So, and um, my next tattoo... Um, is going to be of uh, of the Foreign Legion uh, because it's just something that's so close to my heart with absolutely no, no way to be able to explain it. So the next book is called The Men Who Made the SAS. I just said to Cam, I think I gave a loan of that to someone, although I can't think who I know who would ever ask me for a loan of a book like that, but I just don't seem to have it. Um, so... The Men Who Made the SAS is the story of the origins of the SAS, the men involved uh, and what was done and the reconnaissance. Such brave and crazy men, such balls. I'm in awe of them and of all of the men today who serve in the special forces who protect us, who put their lives on the line every day for us and we don't even know who they are the training they undertake, their commitment to us and uh, to our country is just phenomenal. A wee bit of backstory of the SAS is that it was formed in 1941, initially designed to undertake small-scale raids behind the enemy lines. David Stirling, a founder member, came from Scotland and he used to say Scotland was the backbone of the SAS. So although Scotland only makes up 8% of the UK population, it is suggested, because we can never really know who is in the SAS and who is not, that 15% or more recruits are from Scotland. Yeah, see, we, we produce... We produce fabulous guys here in Scotland, eh, in the SAS. So... Um, Brilliant. I, I just love special forces and elite things and think about the type of men that are attracted into doing that and can commit to that type of training and uh, to that type of uh, general commitment for a country. And so just to show my uh, commitment, and that's not only words for me with reference to my absolute awe of, um, of the men in the SAS, 
here is my, I've only got one tattoo, right? So here is my one and only tattoo, which is, which is of the SAS um, logo, which I had done about two years ago. So um, it means that when I die, I will have, I will have with me this lovely tattoo that will remind me of my love for the SAS and all the men uh, that, that are, that are, um, that are with the SAS. So the new tattoo of the Foreign Legion will be coming under that and I will be glad to show you that when that one is done. Um, anyway, I want to change things completely. I'm, I'm also a big fan of autobiographies and biographies and I've brought two with me today that I wanted to talk about. So the first one is called Holy Terror and this is called Holy Terror, Andy Warhol. There we go. Andy Warhol close up. And it's written by a, bo a guy called Bob Colacello, who worked with Andy for most uh, of his career. And I think, um, and he was one of the first people to work in Andy's factories. The factory was the name that Andy gave to his base in New York City. And, um, and, uh, and Bob worked for him and travelled with him, so so he's a pretty good, a pretty good guy who knew Andy Warhol really well to to write the story of his life. So the story covers his early life. His his family were immigrants. They came from Slovakia and they settled in Pittsburgh. And uh, Andy was born in 1928. Um, to to then you know Bob talks about his crazy life in New York City, which spanned from the 60s into the 80s. Um, anyone could be found in the factory at any given time, from drag queens to artists. You know, often um, Mick Jagger was a real, uh, was a real uh, regular at the, at the factory, um, as were, you know, uh, uh, any type of person, the more outrageous, the better. There was, um, there was congressmen in there as well, mixing with prostitutes. There was drugs and booze. And it was all mixed in with interns from high society families. So, I mean, I'm telling you this. If I'd been, if I'd been over there in the 70s, I'd have been in there. There's no question about it. I would have loved it from start to finish. Um, Andy Warhol has been described as an American uh, visual, visual artist, a director and producer and a leading figure in the pop art movement. In many ways, he was way ahead of his time. The phrase which you'll probably have heard of, everyone deserves their 15 minutes of fame, that came from Andy Warhol. Um, and also, after a conversation I had in here with Mark, I decided to watch the Andy Warhol Diaries on Netflix, which was fascinating and scary at the same time. Um, so Andy Warhol is a Marmite thing. You either love him or you absolutely don't love him in any sense at all. I was just fascinated because I was I was brought I was being brought up in the seventies. So I was fascinated to know uh, what I was doing in the seventies by comparison to what was going on in his life and you know this uh, crazy life that uh, that people that people led for years and years and years. Uh, so it just gives you an insight into the craziness and also the success. It was extremely successful. Uh, Andy Warhol with his with his paintings in particular, his his writing and directing and producing was never fantastic. It didn't it, it didn't reach the dizzy heights that the paintings did. And you know he had incredible people posing for him, from Elizabeth Taylor at the time to Jackie Onassis to Chairman Mao to uh, um, 
and um, Mick Jagger, you know, all, all the sort of uh, celebs of the day uh, all posed for him. So, uh, uh, but it's interesting to see what went on behind that. You know, what was he really like as a man? And he was very strange. That's all I can say. But it's a really enjoyable book. It's a big, big book. So you have to be, want to be in it for the long haul to hear uh, the full story. But I was fascinated by it. So yeah, I did read it. I haven't read it twice, but I did read the whole book. And the last book today is... is um, is uh, Transformer. Where am I? Yes, Transformer, which is uh, the story of Lou Reed. Uh, Lou Reed, incredibly famous singer-songwriter from the 60s. Um, and it talks about his, from his scarring electroshock treatment. I don't know if you remember me mentioning this. It might have been in series two. It was quite early on, I think, or three maybe, um, how um, when he was young, and I'm talking about a youth, so I'm talking about maybe 15 or 16, he was breaking into cars and he was getting... Boo, you know, boozed up and his parents couldn't cope with him. And uh, they took him to the doctor. They said, listen, I know what, what, what he's really needing. They're trying out this new thing, electroshock treatment. Let's get him in for that. That'll sort him out. And that's what they did. And they, they took him in. And I think he was in hospital for several weeks. Um, and um, if he ever spoke about it, he used to say that it, that it, it, it scarred him for life. It changed his personality. It wiped out all of his memory, and he couldn't remember things even, even, even now. And uh, and blamed a lot of his. It must have been horrific. I can't imagine how awful that must have been. Um, so it talks about that to uh, you know the dizzy heights of collaborating with some of the greatest artists of the time, including Metallica. Now that happened, I think, quite late on. I don't know where that would be. Might have been the eighties, I think, maybe, where they just met at one of these big. Um, big uh, sort of festivals or something and they somehow get into conversation and he did quite a bit of work with Metallica and Pavarotti my god I mean who, who would have put together Lou Reed and Pavarotti and the two of them performed uh, Perfect Day which is my favourite song of Lou Reed um, so in the early 70s David Bowie and Mick Ronson uh, produced Transformer which was the biggest um, selling solo album for Lou Reed. It was his first solo album and uh, and was incredibly successful. And just after that, David Bowie introduced him to London. And so the rest is history, if you see, and that's where all the all the British fans came from. Um, the David Bowie-Lou Reed relationship apparently was close, but quite uh, tempestuous. <laughs> uh, so... Um, so he did it did finally. I had to wait a bit of a while because he really was well known for being part of a band called the Velvet Underground and they were successful. I mean, up until not really that long ago, very successful, a kind of uh, one of these uh, things that people just keep going back to all the time. So he had a great success with the band, but he wanted to get out on his own and so Transformer was the album that did that for him. But his alcohol and drug abuse is well documented as is his relationship with the drag queen, uh, it's either Raquel or Rachel, which I read about in the book, which was a little bit bizarre, but, you know, who am I to say? Uh, but without question, Lou Reed was one of music's pioneers and is perhaps mostly remembered for his band, as I said already, The Velvet Underground. What a life and what an insight. A brilliant book. Uh, I, I love both of these people, th those books that I've just mentioned, but primarily because I was around in those times, so it was kind of relevant for me to reflect on. So 
I've, I've finished talking about the books. Just two other things that I wanted to pick up on today, and I wanted to tell you and share share a story with you that happened about a year or so ago that really made me think, wow, you really have changed for the better, Christy. So this is a wee story about... Uh, one Friday, I was going down to visit my brother who lives in Kilfinnan, which is a beautiful place in Argyll. It's quite remote. It's about a two and a half hour uh, drive. And when I got there, there were it was a lovely day and there was other people there too. So it looked like it was going to be a good night ahead. Uh, my sister-in-law had made some steak pie for me, my most actual favourite food ever. So listen, things were going well. All the boxes were getting ticked. And then the phone rang and it was my son. How you doing, Ma? Oh, I said, I'm fine. And what is the reason that you're phoning me in Kilfinnan? He says, well, the thing is, I've arrived at your door and I don't have a key. Now, I can't remember why he didn't have a key. And I can't remember what it was he needed, but he needed something that was really urgent. It was like a passport or something from inside the house. And we foolishly hadn't given a spare key to any neighbours or anything else. So I guess I had to... I said, listen, I said in the phone, listen, I'll just come up the road. So everybody's looking at me saying, where are you going? You're only just here. I said, listen, I'll finish that cup of tea. I need to go back. What? You need to go back? Why? I said, because my son's no got a key and I told them the story. Or, oh, of course, everybody's got an opinion and you're daft. Just leave him. I wouldn't go back for him. All that stuff. I said, yeah, I know that, but I just need to go back. So I got in the car and I came back. And I think my son was shitting his cell, obviously, thinking, oh, my God, she's that, you know, that's like one, two, three hundred miles or whatever she said to drive in the matter space of hours. But it was quite interesting how I genuinely wasn't angry. And I just said, you know what, son, these things happen. Opened the door and in we went. And I never, ever brought it up again. And then, you know, a week afterwards, I thought, wow. Did you see yourself there, Christine? Did you see what you did? I mean, if that had been th three years ago or whatever, I would have went mental. I would have shouted and screamed and swore. I'd have been, I'd have been like that, driving back, and I wouldn't have spared the horses. He would have got it right, left, and centre from me. But what difference would that have made? Because the thing that was done, wasn't it? What does it matter? I said to, to my brother and his wife, do you know what? There'll be other days for me to come down here. Thank you so much. I know the steak pie won't be left. People will be wolfing into that. No bother at all. Um, and so there was a real life example of a, a different person. I just felt like a different person. I didn't feel like a different person at the time. It just felt the most natural thing in the world for me to behave like that. But actually it wasn't. But it kind of sometimes things culminate and you're thrown a wee test to see how you do. And... Uh, and so uh, it was a nice wee moment for me to to really see how I had changed and the person I had uh, become. So that was a nice wee story. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was that I realised how often, especially recently, even in my wee uh, homemade hand-knitted videos, I talk quite a lot about being a bam. Um, and I've mentioned it quite a lot, refer refer uh, referring to myself and I think BAM's kind of a, a Glasgow word, isn't it? But I think most people in Scotland know, know what we mean. And I forget that it's not just Scottish people watching the podcast. It's not just Scottish people watching uh, or, 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 um, or following me on Instagram. So I thought it was high time that I explained exactly what a BAM is, both from a Glasgow perspective and from a non-Glasgow perspective. So just for clarification, a BAM is a nutter, 
Aroka, no right in the heat or not right in the head, or someone who is, this, this is what the dictionary says, someone who is foolish, annoying, obnoxious, and disruptive, or as we would say in Glasgow, just pure mental. So that's me done for this episode. It's quite a long one. I don't even want to ask how long this one is. I hope this dress addresses any misconceptions. I hope you've enjoyed this wee change of vibe today and with a bit of luck, you've maybe got something out of it. I am, I, I just love reading so much. So this has been a real, real pleasure for me to do this podcast today and it's just something a wee bit different for me. Um, so I hope you, you get something out of it too. It's been really great having your company as always today. And I look forward to seeing you next week.